The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Well, I want to begin today's teaching with an update from last week's teaching. If you were here last week, you know that I recently purchased a bottle of Harold's Miracle Hair Tonic. Harold's Miracle Hair Tonic promised me that it would instantly grow thick, shiny, lustrous hair. And I applied that tonic three times last Sunday, once in each of our morning services. And it is with great disappointment that I report to you that not a single seedling has sprouted atop my desolate scalp. So let this be a lesson for all the kids out there that you cannot believe everything you read on the internet, all right? In fact, this week I read of another scam. Apparently the police arrested a man for selling secret formula tablets. He claimed these tablets uh, gave you eternal youth. If you consume these tablets, he said you would never grow old. And what made the scam even more frustrating was going through the files, the police discovered that this was the fifth time the same man had been pushing this identical scam. Apparently, he had previously been arrested for selling Miracle Eternal Youth tablets back in 2003, in 1994, in 1934, in 1857, and in 1785. Now, not all formulas are scams. There are many formulas in life that work very well. And today, we are going to discover a valuable formula for successful living. Now, this is the third and final installment in our Everything series. It's a series that was designed to answer three simple questions. The first week, we asked the question, who owns everything? And we learned that God owns everything. God created it. God owns it. All of it. So last week, we followed up by asking the obvious next question. Well, if God owns everything, why do I have anything? And we learned the answer to that. We have anything because God gave it to us. He gave us his resources for three key purposes, for us to enjoy them, for us to share them, and as a way for God to determine our eternal reward. He gives us things because he tests us and rewards us according to how we handle what he gives us in this life. And that brings us to today's concluding question. Okay, so then what is the best way to handle everything that God gives to us? I mean, if we're going to be judged and rewarded according to how we handle God's resources, what's the best way to do that? Now, the answer isn't really complicated at all. In fact, we learned the answer last week. If we look closely at the passage we studied, remember from 1 Timothy, let's put it up on the side screens. He said, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So what do we do? Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and be willing to share. In this way, in other words, if they do what I just told you, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. What's the best way to handle everything? What kind of response will God award and reward? Isn't it obvious, folks? It's right there. Command them to do good, to be rich, to be generous, willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves. It's obvious. Be generous. Be willing to share. That's what we're supposed to do. That's how we lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven. So why do we struggle here, folks? 
I mean, it's quite obvious what we're supposed to do with what God places in our hands. So why are we struggling? Why are we all acting like we're so confused? What's really going on here? I'm going to put up a statement on the side screens. I want you to read the statement, and I want you to think about it for a moment. Let's put it up there. And just take a moment, read that, and think about it. For those watching on video, we fear that if we are generous, we will have nothing left for ourselves. We fear that if we're generous, we're going to have nothing left for ourselves. Now, be honest with yourself. Is that your greatest obstacle when it comes to obeying God's biblical command to be generous? Is that your fear when it comes to giving? I fear that if I'm generous, I'll actually have nothing left for myself. Is that fear legitimate? Is it even rational? I think I've shared with you in the past what my older brother Mitch used to do to me as a child. And Mitch, if you're watching, yes, you did this to me. As a little kid, I was about six or seven years old, and he was about four, five years older than me. He would pin me down on the ground, and then he'd lean over, and he'd cover up my face, and he'd make sure it was dark, and then he'd say, you can't breathe. You can't breathe. It's getting harder to breathe. The walls are closing in, and I'd try to just push through, push through, and then finally my mind would just go crazy, and I'd scream, get off me, get off me, get off me, and then he'd get off, and he'd laugh, and he'd laugh, and he'd do this. I bet he did this a hundred times to me as a kid, and now to this very day, I struggle with claustrophobia. I have no idea why, but for some reason, sometimes when I get into small spaces, I cannot get it in the very back seat of a van. I just, I feel like it's closing in on me. Now, I know that my my fear of small faces is not faces, small spaces. I'm fine with small faces. But small spaces, I know that's not rational. But I find myself having to fight it all the time. Well, like me, do you have some fears that aren't exactly rational? We fear that if we're generous, we'll have nothing left for ourselves. Is this a legitimate, rational fear when it comes to our finances? If it isn't legitimate or rational, what can we do to overcome this fear? Well, today we're doing our best to answer that question. And we're going to do that by giving you two financial fear busters. Two helpful tools that will enable you to tackle your financial fear and obey God's financial command. Now, the first financial fear is this. A first financial fear buster is this. A God-centered mindset. A God-centered mindset. Sports psychology has sort of exploded over the last 10, 20 years. And I was reading some writing from a sports psychologist recently, and this gentleman stated that. He said, listen, when you get to the top level, the top tier of elite athletes, the difference is not in skill. He said, essentially, there's very little difference in skill levels at the highest level of sport. He said, what sets elite, athlete, elite athletes apart from other excellent athletes is the elite athlete's ability to manage their thoughts, to discern and to defeat the lies in their head, and to find and focus upon the truth. Now, this importance of thoughts regarding success in life is not a new discovery. The biblical writers have been declaring this reality for centuries. Look what the Apostle Paul wrote 2,000 years ago. He said, do not conform to the pattern of this world. 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He said, don't conform to those lies and the thoughts that this world throws at you. No, instead be transformed. How? By renewing your mind, by changing your mindset. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 10. We demolish arguments. We demolish every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. He says, we look at where the lies are and we demolish them. We look at our thoughts. We're very attentive to what they're thinking. And we make sure that they align to the truth. In these two passages, the Apostle Paul calls us to have a God-centered mindset. Now, what does that mean? I gave you this definition on your outlines today. It's the discipline of recognizing and managing our thoughts in order to live according to the truth. That's what a God-centered mindset is. It's the discipline of recognizing and managing our thoughts in order to live according to the truth. Now, in a world filled with false narratives and deceiving voices, having a God-centered mindset is essential for effective living. Well, what kind of thoughts do we need to manage and recognize? Well, let's go back to what we learned two weeks ago in the very first installment of this series. Remember, we learned what Scripture said. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it, it says in Deuteronomy. The prophet Haggai said, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The psalmist wrote, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it are his, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. What's the truth we need to focus upon when it comes to our finances? God owns everything. That's the truth. The truth that God is the creator, the owner, and the supplier of all things. That's the truth we need to have at the forefront of our minds for a God-centered mindset. God's the creator of everything. He's the owner of everything. He's the supplier of everything. Folks, Let's think rationally about this. If you knew that you had an unlimited supply of financial and material resources, would you still worry about giving? If you knew that you had an unlimited supply of financial and material resources, would that increase or decrease your willingness to be generous? So tell me, if you knew that you had access to an unlimited supply of financial and material resources, would it be rational for you to be worried about being generous? Of course not. Well, that is our reality as followers of Jesus Christ. God's the creator, the owner, and the supplier of all things. And that truth forms the basis of a God-centered mindset when it comes to finances. The Apostle Paul was trying to get us to connect these dots. He was trying to get the Corinthians, at the very least, to connect these dots in a letter he wrote to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He's trying to get them to realize that God's the owner, supplier, creator of all things, and, and he gives us all of these things so we can be generous. Listen to what he says. He says, remember this, whoever sows or plants sparingly will also reap or harvest sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. The more you plant, the more you reap. It's a simple principle. Each person should give what they've decided in their heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, 
God loves a cheerful, a happy giver. And look what he says here. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. God is able to put all sorts of his resources in your hand. Why? So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. It's written in the Old Testament. He has scattered abroad gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So he says, so he applies it. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and supplies bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way. Why? So that you can be generous on every occasion. Why do we struggle with generosity when it comes to finances? We fear that if we are generous, we'll have nothing left for ourselves. The first way to bust this financial fear is to have a God-centered mindset, to recognize God as the creator, owner, and supplier of all things. So do you have a God-centered mindset or do you have a me-centered mindset when it comes to the resources in your hands? If you have a me-centered mindset, you can change it. You can begin to transform it today by focusing upon the truth. Well, that's the first financial fear-busting tool, a God-centered mindset. The second financial fear-buster is this, a time-tested method. A time-tested method. As we saw last week, we are clearly commanded in Scripture, and we just saw it again a few moments ago, we're clearly commanded in Scripture to be generous with the resources that God's placed in our hands. So how do we do that? What does being generous look like? Is there a biblical pattern? Is there a biblical template? Well, actually, there is. Speaking to Christ followers in the ancient city of Corinth, the Apostle Paul laid out a foundational principle regarding how God expects us to distribute his resources. In this passage, Paul lays down a, a practical method, a formula for systematic giving. It's in 1 Corinthians 16.2. He said, here, here's what you do, Corinthians. On the first day of every week, each one should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up. Now, he says, on the first day of every week, that means every Sunday, each one should set aside a sum of money. That means every Sunday, each person should decide upon a portion of their income to be donated. Oh, how big of a portion. Each one should set aside a sum of money in keeping with this income. So it's different for all of us. Well, what does in keeping with their income mean? It means the more a person receives from God, the more that person should give back to God. Now, we understand this principle. We understand when we go to a restaurant, we're supposed to tip our server. You know, 15% is the going rate in our culture. We tip in proportion to our total bill. The bigger the bill, the bigger the tip. Now, does the Bible suggest any formula like that? Actually, it does. In the Old Testament, Leviticus 27, 30, it says this. A tithe of everything from the, from the land. This was a culture where your income came from the land. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy. It's set apart to the Lord. So for centuries, God's people have returned the first 10% of their income back to God through their local church. That first 10% for centuries, thousands of years, has gone back to God. It's called tithing because the word tithe literally means one-tenth or 10%. Now, a follower of Jesus Christ, and that's who I'm speaking to right now in this topic today, 
A follower of Jesus Christ is someone who believes what Jesus believed and lives like Jesus lived. There is no doubt whatsoever that Jesus tithed, and he certainly endorsed it. I mean, Jesus had some famous verbal battles with the religious leaders of his day, but tithing is one of the few things where Jesus and those religious leaders agreed. In fact, tithing is one thing for which Jesus commended them. Now, people have been looking for ways to get around this tithing principle for about 2,000 years now. See, what people will often say is, yeah, Darren, tithing, but that's from Leviticus. That's from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the old contract that God had with Israel. We now live in the New Testament, the New Covenant, the New Contract. So tithing isn't in the New Testament. That's in the Old Testament. And what do I say to people who say that? I say, you're absolutely right. Absolutely, you are right. Tithing is not laid out in the New Testament. It is clearly tied to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the old way of doing things. It was part of that contract where the Jewish people would go to the temple and they would have an animal slaughtered and the blood would be spread on the mercy seat, uh, the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies as a way of covering over their sins. Every time they were conscious of a sin, they were to have a, 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 a sacrifice made on their behalf to cover over their sins, to give them a way to interact with God. And tithing was part of that that whole contract, that whole law. You would give 10% of your income as part of this agreement, this arrangement, this relationship you had with God. That's the old covenant. That's not the new covenant. The new covenant, the New Testament, is where we no longer look to the blood of goats and bulls and sheep and animals to forgive us of our sins or to cover over our sins because God has come in the form of the man, Jesus of Nazareth. He died in our place once and for all. He did away with all of that because once and for all, God himself took on the form of humanity. He died in our place. He became the ultimate lamb of God, shed his blood for us, died, rose from the dead, and now offers the gift of forgiveness and eternal life to anyone who would call upon him, anyone who places their faith in him. And as a response to that, we give him less. Does that make sense to you? Under the Old Testament, animals were slaughtered and we gave 10%. Under the New Testament, no longer is that necessary. God himself died in our place. And as a response, we're going to give him less than they gave in the old covenant. Does that make sense to you? It doesn't make sense to me. The New Testament principle is generosity, liberality. You give whatever your heart desires to give. But you be generous. And I have a hard time believing generous is less than they gave under the law. But that's between you and God. Now, you may be here, and this is all very new to you, and you're afraid. You just don't know if you can do this. Now, let me say, first of all, that this is not something you do to earn your salvation, not at all. Neither is this something you do on impulse or out of guilt feeling. No, don't do it for those reasons. This is a heartfelt decision rooted in a God-centered mindset. This is what you do when you fully recognize that God made you, God owns you, and that means your wealth as well. This is intentional living as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Now, you're sitting there and you're saying to yourself, this is all new to me, Darren. What are you saying here? What am I supposed to do? What, what should I do next? I think you have two next step options from which you can choose. 
The first option is this, just start tithing. Cold turkey, just do it. Start giving 10% back to God. If you're looking for the most immediate, life-impacting option, and I speak from personal experience here, I recommend the first option. It's what I did decades ago when I first became a follower of Jesus at the age of 19, 20 years of age. I told myself, all right, God's people have been doing this for thousands of years, so I can do it. I choose to trust that God is going to take care of me. I can tell you, if you do this, you will not regret it. This will be to your spiritual growth what steroids would be to your physical growth, except without the long-term damage. Now, having said that, I realize that some people are listening to me right now, and you are traumatized at the thought of starting cold turkey, of just suddenly giving 10%. For whatever reason, you don't feel you can do that. You want to honor God, you love God, but you feel kind of stuck and trapped in this moment. You say, Darren, what do I do? In the past, I didn't know how to direct such a person. In the past, it was an all or nothing thing for me. Either you start cold turkey 10% or I don't know what to tell you. Just live in disobedience. That was my thinking. But over the years, I've come to a second option for those who don't feel they can start at 10%. And it's based upon a principle that Paul just wrote that we read a couple moments ago. Remember, he said, each person should give what he's decided in his heart to give Not reluctantly, not under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. I see in there another way. Paul says, listen, you don't think you can start at 10%? All right, listen. You should give what you've decided in your heart to give as you're sitting there. Don't give reluctantly, meaning I really don't want to do this. And I'm really reluctant. I think this is a mistake. I don't want to do this. Or under compulsion, don't give it. Well, Darren says I should do this. and I hate Darren right now. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves it when we're happy to give back to him. So here's the question. What can you cheerfully give? What can you give that's not reluctant or under compulsion? Whatever you can cheerfully give, start there and let God grow your faith. What does God want us to do with his treasures? What will he reward? God wants us to enjoy his resources and he wants us to be generous and willing to share his resources. And for centuries, Christ followers have understood this to include giving the first 10% of our income back to him through his church. But that still leaves me holding 90% of his resources. What am I supposed to do with the remaining 90%? Well, over those same centuries, Christ followers have understood scripture to endorse another step. The second 10% should be set aside for your personal savings. The second 10% should be set aside for your personal savings. The writer of Proverbs, the wisdom writer, said this in Proverbs 21.20. In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil. A wise person has a storeroom, he says. But a foolish man devours all he has. The wise person sets things aside for the future. The foolish person eats everything, devours all of his resources right now. Now, isn't it funny how we find this second recommendation to be so wise and such common sense? Oh, of course, Darren, yes. Set aside 10% of my, for my personal savings. Yes, very wise. Great advice, Darren. Wise indeed. Great financial uh, acumen. Great financial decision, we say to ourselves. Giving God 10%, that's crazy talk. Giving yourself 10%, that's genius. 
Actually, it is wise to put away money for the future in savings and a pension plan. That is wise. But won't God provide for my future? Absolutely, he will, and this is one of the ways he'll do it. Give the first 10% back to God as an act of worship. Give the next 10% aside for yourself as an act of wise money management for the future. That still leaves us with 80% of God's resources at our disposal. What am I supposed to do with the rest? The remaining 80% is to be used for your enjoyment as you feel directed. That's why it's called the 10-10-80 principle. 10% to God, 10% for yourself, and then live off the 80% for your enjoyment as you feel directed. This number, the 80, is the number that you have to live off of. This is your disposable income. This is yours to decide how you want to spend. This is the pool from which your personal generosity flows. The year was 1886. The little girl's name was Hattie Mae Wyatt. She lived in a very poor part of Philadelphia, near a church building that was so small, they sometimes had to send her home. There was no room for her in the Sunday school class, so she couldn't go into the church sometimes. She didn't think that was right, by the way. Hattie Mae's a little girl became ill and she died. And the pastor of that small church, Reverend Conwell, was asked to do Hattie Mae's funeral. Now, the little girl's mother told the pastor that Hattie Mae had actually been secretly saving money to help build a larger church so everyone could come. Hattie Mae came home one day and said, Mom, they couldn't fit me in the church again today, and that's wrong. They need to be building a bigger church there. And so she started to put aside money as a little wee girl that she would eventually give to the church. The mother gave Reverend Conwell Hattie Mae's little purse in which she had faithfully put aside 57 cents. Reverend Conwell had those 57 cents turned into 57 pennies, and he told the congregation the story of little Hattie Mae. The congregation was so inspired, they actually auctioned off those pennies, and they got $250, which was a lot of money in the 1800s. A house nearby was purchased with the $250 that Hattie Mae's 57 cents had raised, and that house was used as the home for the first classes of Temple College, which is now known as Temple University. And as the college grew, they sold the house Hattie Mae bought to allow Temple College to grow and also build what was then known as Good Samaritan Hospital, which is now known as Temple University Hospital all from a little girl's investment of 57 cents. Hattie Mae gave what she had, and God multiplied it. That was Hattie Mae's legacy of generosity. That's the kind of thing our God does when we're generous with what he places in our hands. That was Hattie Mae's legacy. What will be your legacy? Last week, the leadership of Broadway Church announced a new initiative, a new opportunity to do exactly what Hattie Mae did, to leave a lasting legacy. If you weren't here, let's watch this on the side screens. Hey, everyone. I'm Bruce Wong, the treasurer here at Broadway Church, and I'm here with Carlene Hornby-Allen. Now, Car, I've invited you to help me for two reasons. One, you're the daughter of our former longtime and much beloved pastor, Alan Hornby. And two, you're a long-serving member of our church's finance and audit committee. And that makes you uniquely qualified to help me unveil an exciting new development. 
Coming next year, we'll be launching the Broadway Church Legacy Fund. So let's unpack this a bit for everyone. What exactly is an endowment fund? And what's the value in setting it up that way? Well, Bruce, an endowment fund is basically a protected pool of money that's set aside for a specific purpose, in our case, to fund future ministry opportunities. Normally, when you give a gift to Broadway Church, it's used to fund ministry in the current year. But if you give a gift to the Legacy Fund, it stays in the fund and only the income from your gift is used to fund ministry. So it's available for this year, but for many years in the future. So if we have this Legacy Fund, it means Broadway Church knows that it can fund future ministry in the community for decades to come. So your gift to the fund stays in the fund. In essence, it becomes a lasting legacy into the future for our church family. Which brings me to the second thing I'd like you to talk about. Now today, our Vancouver campus sits on a spacious property on the corner of Broadway and Slocan, with two buildings and ample parking facilities, but it hasn't always been that way. In fact, our Vancouver campus itself is a legacy. The legacy of the vision, and the plans put into place almost 30 years ago under your father's leadership. Would you mind telling us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Dad's vision was to maintain a strong and vibrant Christian presence in the heart of the city of Vancouver, a base that we could use to show God's love to community leaders and the vulnerable around us. Because of that vision and the sacrificial investment of hundreds of people, many of whom are still part of our church family today, we had the ability to acquire various properties across the city which we have used in ministry. Without their sacrificial investment, we wouldn't have this beautiful church and many of our ministries would not be possible. Their legacy to us was a strong church and fantastic facilities. The exciting thing about the Legacy Fund is it's our opportunity to continue the legacy by providing a firm financial foundation for our future ministry. So with that significant example of legacy from our own history, you're right, that's exactly why we're setting up the Legacy Fund today. Just as who and what we are today is in many ways a legacy, a legacy of the investment of those who came before us, we today want to be able to give and invest during our lifetimes in order to leave a legacy for those who will come after us. With this Legacy Fund, you can continue being a part of Broadway Church, expressing God's agape love indefinitely into the future. Now, one more question, Carr. How do donors typically give to an endowment fund such as this? Well, Bruce, donors give in a variety of ways. One that's really popular is by way of will or estate, because sometimes when people die, they want to ensure that they leave a lasting legacy. Mm -hmm. But people may choose to give a gift from time to time, or they may choose to give a gift in honor of someone who has been important to their life. No gift is too small, because this fund will develop and grow over the future, and every donation will get a tax receipt. So there you have it, the Broadway Church Legacy Fund, helping build the church of our dreams. Watch for more details coming in 2020. Well, let's conclude. God commands us to be generous. So why are we afraid to obey God's command? We fear that if we're generous, we'll have nothing left for ourselves. Well, today we've done our best to equip you to overcome that fear by providing you with two fear-busting truths a God-centered mindset, and a time-tested method. 
Now, we've done our best to show you how a follower of Jesus typically thinks and typically acts when it comes to handling the resources that God has placed in our hands. And that brings us to today's big idea where we sum up the teaching. It's the one who thinks wisely and acts intentionally that lives victoriously. It's the one who thinks wisely and acts intentionally that will live victoriously. Now, maybe you're asking, Darren, why do you teach on this subject year after year after year? I thank you for coming out year after year after year during the month of November. You could stay home because you know this is the same subject I teach on every November for three weeks. I've been teaching on the same subject as a series for about 30 years now. And people say, Darren, why do you do this subject year after year after year? I'll tell you why. Two men crashed their private plane on the South Pacific Island. Both of them survived. One of the men said, this island's uninhabited. There's no fresh water or food. We're going to die. And the other guy said, we're not going to die. Trust me. Why do you say that? Because I make $100,000 a week. That's why. What does the fact that you make $100,000 a week matter to us? We're stranded on a South Pacific island. What you make back on the mainland doesn't help us. Oh, no, trust me. We will not die. I make $100,000 a week. How does that help us? Because I go to church and I tithe. My pastor's going to find us. People of Broadway Church, I do not teach on this subject for personal gain. My income is not tied to how much money the church receives year after year. I do not get a percentage of the offering. That's not how it works. So why do I teach on this topic year after year? I'll tell you why. I teach on this subject year after year because as followers of Jesus Christ, one day, we are all going to stand before the one who created us. You will stand before God someday as a follower of Jesus. And your life is going to be investigated. Not for the purpose of exposing sin. No, Jesus took away our sin. But for the purpose of being rewarded. As we learned last week, the Apostle Paul described that moment in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He said, our lives will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what we have built survives, we'll receive our reward. If it's burned up, we will suffer loss. We ourselves will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. People of Broadway Church, I don't want you to just escape on that day. I want you to be rewarded on that day. And in my little fantasy sometimes, I picture myself standing off to the side of the throne of God and watching as people are receiving the rewards. And every time someone from Broadway Church steps forward, I get to the edge of my seat and I watch. And I get to watch as God's abundance and blessing is poured out upon your life as you are rewarded for your stewardship. And I want to be able to think at that moment by the throne of God that maybe, just maybe, just my fantasy, that maybe, just maybe, I got to play a tiny role in your huge, eternal success. The people of Broadway, if you live according to the mindset and the method that we've outlined today, if you think wisely and if you act intentionally, you will live victoriously. And I can assure you with the authority of God's word that your eternal reward awaits you.